Hi, this is Ian Wolfe, producer, host and writer for Diffusion Science Radio. I need your support. You can support Diffusion by downloading a free Audible audiobook from audibletrial.com science. Just for getting you to try them out, Audible will pay me a small reward. Or you could click on an Amazon link on diffusionradio.com and Amazon will kick a few percent of what you pay them my way. Please, make a donation directly with the PayPal button on www.diffusionradio.com. Diffusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, what you looking at? But first, here's the news. To the bat signal! Last year I reported how a species of tropical pitcher plant in Borneo offered a safe place to sleep for bats, in return for the bat fertilising it by using the pitcher as a toilet. Since then, researchers have wondered how the bats know which pitcher plants are eating insects and which are the right shape and size to safely sleep in. It turns out that the plants advertise with a bat signal. Nepenthes hemsleyana is a tropical pitcher plant which grows in nitrogen-poor peat bogs. Most pitcher plants lure insects into their pitcher-shaped leaves with nectar, where many creatures fall in due to the slippery sides of the leaves and drown in the liquid below, giving up their nitrogen to the digestive fluids. These Borneo pitcher plants found that inviting insect-eating Hardwick's woolly bats to roost in their pitchers without eating them gave them a higher nutritional payoff. So they evolved to digest bat droppings. The pitchers are roomy, cool, parasite-free and hidden from predators. But the bats have to tell the difference between the carnivorous pitchers and the roosting pitcher plants. Species of nectar-feeding bats call out with their sonar to gain a picture of the Borneo forest, and they get a strong sound reflection from the flowers that offer nectar in return for pollination. On these plants, their flowers have evolved with shapes that reflect echoes loudly. To find out if the pitcher plants did the same thing, they brought in a robot bat head with a central loudspeaker and two microphones. They played ultrasonic sound at the pitcher plants from different directions and recorded the echoes. The team found that the back wall of Nepenthes hemsleyana, the bit that connects its lid to its main chamber, is curved strongly to refl- is curved to strongly reflect the sound back in the direction it came from. To a bat, the pitchers would light up. To verify the findings, researchers changed the shape of the reflector on several pitchers. They made some bigger, some smaller, some with different shapes. They hid them in some shrubbery and put the whole lot in a tent with some Hardwick's woolly bats. By choice, the bats went for the pitchers with unaltered 
parabolic dishes. Hardwick's woolly bats make the highest pitched calls of any known bat, which the team from the University of Brunei Dar es Salaam and the University of Greifswald believe they use to identify targets in cluttered environments. A related tropical pitcher plant, Nepenthes lowii, doesn't offer a home to bats. Instead, it offers nectar to birds and tree shrews in the Borneo forests. Again, the plants don't try and trap and eat the small animals, but encourage them to use the pitchers as a toilet to harvest the nitrogen from the droppings by offering a comfortable perch for them to feed from. The perch gets them to position themselves over the bowl of the pitcher while they feed on the laxative nectar. Sneaky. Nepenthes lowii is also known as the bird toilet plant. Growing these plants in your backyard would be one way to make sure the birds don't leave a mess on your drying clothes. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. What are you looking at? Dan Sorvik is a user experience consultant who works at Objective Experience with an extensive background in eye tracking. At the Wearable Computers Meetup, he gave a talk about his research into eye tracking. I began by asking him, what is eye tracking and why would you want to do it? So eye tracking is the ability to track people's attention, right? So there's cameras out there that can, you know, see what's in the field of view. Eye tracking takes that to the next level to not only give you the field of view, but also exactly where people are looking at maybe 30 or 50 or 300 frames per second. So it's very, uh, very accurate, very precise, um, very fast, and you can get to see all the little micro interactions that an eye might have. Now the way that's used is, uh, in my field I use it for research. So it's in understanding what gets people's attention, what they, what, what they linger on, whether they're reading, whether they're scanning, and also what's missed. I mean, there might be some key information out there that people are missing altogether. So we look at different sort of layouts and, and how information is organized and, yeah, and, and use that for research purposes. And what tools do you use to do that? We've got, a f- we actually have a suite of eye trackers. The ones that I use most frequently are the Toby Glasses 2 and the Toby X230. Right, so the glasses too are a set of glasses that the uh, participant or the respondent can wear, and they can move around, say, a, a shopping center, a supermarket, an airport, or uh, even a basketball court. The Toby X230 is something you'd clip onto the bottom of a laptop or a monitor and use that while surfing the web or using a desktop application. And the Toby glasses, how are they tracking where you look? So the glasses have a few different things they're recording. The first is the field of view, so what's, what's in front of the person. Uh, the second is the audio, so if they're having a conversation, it records that. But the really interesting thing is the way it tracks the eyes. So there's actually two cameras on each eye, which creates a, it's like a 3D model of the eye. Um, and it uses near-infrared light 
to um, to kind of beam off the eyeball, right? Now your your cornea actually has a small ridge. Um, we're getting a bit technical here, but the uh, the small ridge um, actually creates a glint using that infrared light, which is picked up by the cameras and then triangulated onto that field of view camera. So hopefully that's not too technical. Um, but essentially there's mini cameras on the inside of the glasses which are able to see um, all of your eye movements. And so you talked about some of the use cases being things like shopping, I guess that's to work out where you're looking and what you're looking at. Yeah, that's right. So we've kind of have three different areas that we mainly use them in. The shopper space is looking at like supermarkets, what gets people to buy, you know, what, what catches their attention and, and how do they make decisions on what they're going to purchase. The other two areas are user experience. So in understanding how people use a thing or a device and looking for kind of issues people might be having. And then we as consultants try to fix them. And then finally in the academic space, there's actually a really broad spectrum of how they're being used. So anything from healthcare to cockpits to psychology to developmental sciences, there's, there's a, a whole plethora of applications that universities around the world are, are using them for. And you also mentioned that they can be used to help people with disabilities. That's right, yeah. So there's another side of eye tracking, which we kind of call gaze interaction. So this allows us to use the technology and the, and the actual the person using them can, say, write messages or communicate in various ways by using their eyes as an input mechanism. So instead of using something like a keyboard, they can use their eyes to, to type various things out. So that might be the sort of thing that Stephen Hawking might use. That's right, yeah. Stephen Hawking or yeah, anyone with motor disabilities can use something this, like this all day, every day. Yeah, it's a really fascinating side of, side of the field, actually. Oh, you talked about heat maps. What, what is a heat map? Yeah, cool. Uh, a heat map is it's a way of taking multiple people's data. All right? So let's say you've done a, an eye-tracking study with 30 people. What you can do with that data is put them all together and see what areas attract the most attention across that entire audience or what things are being missed. You can also create heat maps for multiple groups. So you might have males and females or older, younger, and actually compare the differences across entire samples. A heat map is, it looks kind of like a uh, like a bullseye, I guess. There'd be like red areas where there's lots of attention and then that kind of fades to yellows and greens as, as it gets less and less attention. And so that can tell you things like where in the supermarket is the best place to put something. That's right, yeah. So in the shopper space, it'll tell you um, what are the hot spots, where, you know, where are people looking. For us, that's really important because uh, if you think about it, people aren't going to buy something unless they're going to consider it. And they can't consider something unless they see it, right? So the idea for most brands is to be in that visible area so that it can therefore be considered and potentially be purchased. And roughly where's the most popular space on the shelf? Well, it, it kind of varies, but typically it's in that kind of maybe about 15 degrees below your visual area. So it actually depends on how tall you are. Um, but yeah, the kind of fourth to sixth shelf, depending on the supermarket. So if people are wearing the glasses to go shopping, 
does it affect how they go shopping? Aren't they going to be going, oh, someone's watching where I'm looking. I'm, I'm going to make sure I don't look over here, but I do look over there. And are they very self-conscious? Um, yeah, a lot of people think that. But funny enough, most people actually can't control their eye movements. It's it's all kind of happens in our subconscious. Um, there's only a few kind of different types of people. I know you mentioned uh, magicians earlier. Or I think basketball players are very good at controlling their eye movements. But but the majority of the population, um, it all kind of happens subconsciously. So in the supermarket example, we um, we tend to give people a realistic task, and and we kind of we let them know that. You know, everyone's in their own little world in the supermarket. People don't really pay attention. So after about 20 seconds or 30 seconds, they usually settle into the task pretty easily. Um, we do have some people taking a selfie maybe in the first minute or so, but um, we also try to throw them off the scent by, uh, let's say, if we're interested in um, pet food, for example, we'll give them a list of five different things, and pet food's only one of them. So by the time they finish shopping for the first thing, they actually forget what... They forget they're wearing them. And there's applications to things like driving as well? Yeah, there's, there's a whole heap of applications. Driving and cockpits is a huge one, uh, especially around safety and, and training. Outdoor advertising, wayfinding. So that's like, how, how do people get through a, an airport or a shopping center? Uh, mobile and tablets. So how people use their mobile on a bus, for example, could be an interesting uh, case study motorcycles yeah there's all sorts any anytime you want to understand what's getting attention it, there's no other tool out there that can actually do that and i suppose for training you could find out what people who are very good at whatever skill it is where they're looking and train people look in the same place that's right um my, my favorite type of studies are things that have really objective data so we like to get two different user groups and then compare so in your example it's a expert versus novice comparison um, so you'll get someone let's take radiology for example um, you'll have a doctor who's been in the field for 30 or 40 years and they've become very good at their job they're very quick very efficient at looking for problems finding them and diagnosing them what we can d then do is use that footage to train the students. Say so this is kind of this is how to most efficiently find and diagnose problems. Now, having said that, you can actually do the reverse. You can teach some of the old, the old hats what bad habits they've fallen into, and actually they could be missing things, or there might be new ways or new technologies out there that that they actually need to be trained on. So, we we do expert novice comparisons and then try to cross train. Thank you for the interview. That was yeah, it was it was really fun talking to the uh, the wearables crowd here. I think in future we'll probably see more of this stuff being incorporated into things like virtual reality, gaming, which is something I'm really excited to see take off, as well as being in our smartphones and yeah, hopefully hopefully used for good and not for evil. And if people want to find you online, where should they look? My Twitter is Dan Sorvik. That's D A N S O R V I K. You can email me, dansorvik at gmail.com, or... No, yeah, just, uh, yeah, you can tweet me or email me, dansorvik. Well, Dan Sorvik, thank you very much. Cool. Appreciate it. Thank you. That was Dan Sorvik tracking your gaze at the Sydney Wearable Computers Meetup. And finally, the coalition minority government's war against the climate the Prime Minister of Australia on ABC. 
When I've been up close to these wind farms, there's no doubt uh, not only are they visually awful, but uh, they make a lot of noise. No clean energy for you. The Liberal National Coalition Minority Government started an expensive Senate committee to investigate supposed health risks from wind farms, despite the Australian Medical Research Council report that showed there was no convincing evidence of wind turbine syndrome. The Prime Minister boasted about how he hates the way wind farms look and sound, so he's reduced their industry's growth as far as Parliament will allow. The Prime Minister of Australia with Alan Jones on 2GB. What we did recently in the Senate was reduce, Alan, reduce, capital R-E-D-U-C-E, we reduce uh, the number of these things that we are going to get in the future. Now, I would frankly have liked uh, to have reduced the number a lot more. Good, well, you're the boss. But we got the best deal we could out of the Senate. And if we hadn't had a deal, Alan, uh, we would would have been stuck uh, with even more of these. He promised to appoint a commissioner for wind farms to handle complaints about the noise. It's almost as if he knows what the outcome of the investigation must be. There's no coal mining commissioner to handle complaints about coal mining noise and no committee investigating health risks from coal mining and burning. Black lung disease, anybody? The Prime Minister continued by sanctioning a huge coal mine on the most fertile farming land in a country that has very limited areas of arable land. Next, he cut the incentives for rooftop solar power and then went on to dictate to the Clean Energy Finance Corporation that they must stop financing clean energy. Australians online have been sharing photos comparing the ugliness of open-cut coal mines to the claimed ugliness of wind farms. I'm sure audio of the sound of a coal mine versus the sound of a wind farm will be next. Those farmers, unhappy about the sight and sound of wind farms, probably won't be delighted about the sight and sound of big open-cut coal mines on their land. The government has approved the 35-kilometre-square Shenhua Watermark Open-Cut Coal Mine on the best agricultural land in New South Wales, the Liverpool Plains, signalling that mining is more important than food. Let them eat coal. The Liverpool Plains are a five-hour drive northwest of Sydney. The coal mine will use millions of litres of water, pollute the water table, harm surrounding farms and be an eyesore on the landscape. And of course, digging up and actually burning the coal will accelerate global warming. Hilariously, the government actually decided to blight a farming area in the electorate of the Agricultural Minister. The Agriculture Minister, Barnaby Joyce, is a member of the National Party the junior party in the coalition minority government. The National Party has always claimed to represent farmers, but now it seems unlikely that Joyce can be re-elected, even if he runs unopposed. The regressive Liberal Party are a minority government and would lose power if the Nationals pulled out of the coalition. But it'll never happen. Last year, the Coalition approved a coal mine expansion in the Darling Downs Farming District in Queensland after a $700,000 donation to the Liberal Party by the mining company Ackland. The Darling Downs coal mine now uses 9 billion litres of water a year in a drought-stricken farming area. The Federal Liberals, Australia's authoritarian party, 
took over $1.7 million in donations from the mining industry in the financial year of 2013 to 2014, compared with less than half a million for the Labor Party, which claims to be a party for the workers, and $100,000 for the National Party for the farmers. The new coal mine is bad economically as well as environmentally because coal prices are falling. An extra supply will lower the price even more. It may not even make a profit. The Prime Minister abolished the tariffs that paid people with solar panels on their roofs a premium for feeding their excess electricity back into the power grid. Australia, a sunburned country that's discouraging solar power. They were getting 33 cents per kilowatt hour, down from 60 cents per kilowatt hour when they started, which meant that they would still make back the whole $5,000 they paid for solar power on their roof in just 10 years. And then they'd get free power and start making a profit from the excess. Now they get just 8 cents per kilowatt hour, and in some places they can't sell it back at all. This gives people little incentive to sell back to the grid, so instead they're buying the new generation of batteries to store their excess electricity for use at night and on cloudy days, so they can drop off the commercial power grid altogether. It seems a self-defeating move by a government serving the mining industry. The Clean Energy Finance Corporation was established by an act of parliament by the previous Labour-Green Coalition government as an independent body with the purpose of directing funds to the clean energy sector of industry. The Clean Energy Finance Corporation is famously good at what they do. For every dollar invested, another dollar is returned to the federal government. Free money. It's very profitable. The Liberal National Government tried to abolish the Clean Energy Finance Corporation as soon as they gained power. Their attempts were rejected by the Senate twice. The government told the public that the Clean Energy Finance Corporation needed to go because although it was making lots of money for the Australian people, it wasn't making enough. Now they're dictating that the Clean Energy Finance Corporation must stop investing in wind power and all but giant scale solar power because, unlike coal, they're an established industry that has enough private investment. The Prime Minister went on to claim that the purpose of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation must now be to finance research into new forms of energy. And solar and wind aren't new enough. However, the Clean Energy Finance Corporation is bound by law to provide finance to the clean energy sector of industry, not merely to provide research funds. There's a legal conflict. It was a twist of the knife to the Labor Party because the Labor Party did a deal with the government to slash the renewable energy target in return for a focus on building large-scale solar power stations. They didn't use a large enough spoon. So the government has honoured the letter of that agreement by directing the Clean Energy Finance Corporation to only focus on large-scale solar power stations to the exclusion of rooftop solar and any form of wind power. They are directed to reduce their risk by only investing in technologies with a higher return of profit. They've also been forbidden to reduce their risk by investing in technologies with a higher return of profit because such mature technologies are deemed not to need their help. Wind power and solar power aren't mature enough to be taken seriously, the government says, but they are too mature to get government loans, even when the government makes a huge profit. 
However, fossil fuel subsidies weren't be ending just because coal is a mature technology. The Clean Energy Finance Corporation has been funding a scheme to help poor people who don't own their own homes be able to reap the solar benefits of lower power bills. Some of these are leasing schemes where people buy cheaper power generated from solar panels on their roof, which are owned by someone else who has the capital to buy and install them. These schemes won't be allowed to be funded anymore. The Treasurer and the Finance Minister have issued a mandate as the principal shareholders in the company, bypassing the Minister Against the Environment. The Clean Energy Finance Corporation is seeking legal advice as to whether the Act of Parliament that established its charter as an independent authority overrides the directives of the government. If the government succeeds in killing the corporation by giving it impossible instructions, then they'll have to raise taxes to make up for the shortfall in income. Australia is being left behind as the rest of the world enters a clean energy revolution and coal is the last thing people want. Last week, Denmark generated 140% of its power from wind. Ladies and gentlemen, the Prime Minister of Australia. Coal is good for humanity. Coal is good for prosperity. Coal is an essential part of our economic future here in Australia and right around the world. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on Diffusion? Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. There's a chance it'll generate more listeners. Tell your friends and follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the community radio network, including 2 Triple H in Hornsby, Karingai, 2 NVR in Nambaka Valley, 2 X in Canberra, and 3 NBR in the Mallee border districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links and videos about this week's show. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. And to take us out, here's Almost Lazy with Leave It In The Ground. 
Don't be confused, mate. Why do politicians do favors? Why the ones who own the minds own the newspapers? Huh? Why the politicians do favors? Why the ones who own the minds own the newspapers? Why the politicians do favors? Why the ones who own the minds own the newspapers? Gotta leave it in the ground. Leave it in the ground. Change your way, stop the cold craze. Gotta leave it in the ground. Leave it in the ground. Change your way, stop the cold craze. Gotta leave it in the ground. Leave it in the ground, change your way, stop the cold craze, gotta leave it in the ground. Leave it in the ground, change your way, stop the cold craze. We will break your business model, uh-huh. We will break your business model, that's right. We will break your business model, you know it. We will break your business model, you can't. We will break your business model, it's gonna happen. We will break your business model, you feel it? We will break your business model, our love will break your 